If you have your Bibles, I got to grab mine, actually. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be in uh, verse 33 to 37 today as we continue our series uh, through the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 33 to 37, Jesus says this. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath, oath all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is, it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You know, we, uh, we understand the significance of oath-taking from a pretty young age. Our earliest experience of taking a vow or an oath is often on the schoolyard at recess when we are trying to settle disputes with our friends. For the sake of this morning, we'll call our friend Theodore or Theodora for the ladies. Trying to, cut, to, trying to figure out disputes such as whether Theodore or Theodora's story about how his parents allowed him or her to only eat cake for dinner the night before was true. Because if it was true, then there's hope for the rest of us and we need to figure that out. We can leverage our parents. So as a child, we would try to ensure that this fascinating tale and others like it were true by employing the time-tested playground lie detector test. The pinky swear. Right? The unbreakable oath of wrapping your pinky around your friend's pinky was about the highest level of assurance something was true or someone would do what they said they would do. And the trusted pinky swear was followed closely by spitting on your hand and shaking, or the rather morbid swearing on someone's grave. Show of hands, how many of you have used these methods in the past? Yes. Take an oath at least once in your life, right? And I'm just gonna assume that most of you who put your hands up, you agreed to these kinds of oaths when you were still a kid, because by the time you're a teenager, maybe a little bit younger, you start to realize that these kinds of oaths don't really hold any water to them. And so if you're here and you're in your 20s and you're still pinky swearing, and you're still spitting on your hand and shaking or swearing by someone's grave, then this message is absolutely for you this morning. Now, I'm obviously having a little fun, but, but sadly, a child's kind of flippant approach to to oath-taking is actually quite relevant to what we're going to talk about this morning. In fact, a, a flippant approach to oaths and to vows is exactly what Jesus is addressing in these verses that we just read. In these verses, what Jesus is addressing, the underlying thing that he's concerned about is our integrity, specifically the integrity of our words and the importance of such integrity in the lives of those who are a part of his kingdom. 
And so this morning, as we unpack these verses, we'll begin by looking at the historical context, as we normally do, behind Jesus' teaching. And we're going to see how very easily it relates to us today and fits into our situation today. And then we're going to end with just a couple of important considerations regarding our integrity as followers of Christ and why it's important. So let's pray together as we dig into God's Word. Heavenly Father, as we dig into your Word this morning, we ask that your Holy Spirit would do His work. It is through the power of your Spirit, as we look at the words of your, your living Word, that we are transformed degree by degree into the image of Jesus Christ. Father, we know that integrity for those as followers of Christ is immensely important. And as we look at why this morning, I ask that you, through the power of your Spirit, would convict us where we need to be convicted. Where maybe we can be flippant with our words, with our yeses and our noes. Where we need to maybe come under your authority a little bit more in this area. Father, encourage us and exhort us this morning. Father, we thank you that this word is living and active. We look to you as king. We look to you as Lord. Make us into your image, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you look at verse 33 where we started this morning, Jesus once again begins teaching in this famous Sermon on the Mount a new topic by addressing what the crowd was being taught by the religious leaders of their day. Once again, he begins his teaching with, you have heard that it was said to those of old. In other words, Jesus is saying to the Jews that are gathered, that are listening to him, he says, you have been taught by the scribes and the Pharisees that your ancestors who received the law, that's who Jesus is referring to when he says those of old. He was talking about those who received the law at the time of Moses. He says, you have been taught that they were commanded the following. And then he goes into quote what they were commanded at the end of verse 33. You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. And as we've seen in past weeks, when we looked at Jesus' teaching on anger and Jesus' teaching on lust, what Jesus quotes here as the religious leader's teaching does in fact line up with the written law that's found in the Old Testament. And we'll look at the sources of this teaching in a moment, but like his teaching on anger and like his teaching on lust, Jesus is pointing out that while the religious leaders may quote the Old Testament correctly, the spirit in how they are teaching it and what it actually means is wrong. And he's trying to correct that. So let's first look at where this teaching comes from, and then we'll consider how the religious leaders were teaching it incorrectly. This command not to swear falsely, but to perform what you have sworn is a combination of several Old Testament texts from the law. At first, and most significantly, it is taken from commandment number three of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, when we first read this, our modern perception may not immediately make the correlation between taking God's name in vain and false oaths. Because this commandment has had a rather narrow meaning in our day, and it's often thought that this commandment is only forbidding cursing using the Lord's name. 
And while this is certainly included in the command, the, the command encompasses the bigger idea of not invoking the Lord's name in any wicked or worthless manner. And so a false oath taken by his name would certainly be invoking his name in vain. Leviticus 19 verse 12 says, You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. So we can see the first half of what Jesus is quoting in Leviticus 19.12 when he says, you shall not swear falsely. It's right there in the Old Testament law. And in Numbers 30 verse 2, it says, if a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself to a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds from his mouth. So in Numbers 30 verse 2, we see the second half of what Jesus is quoting. You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Deuteronomy 23, verse 21 to 23, kind of puts it all together in one section. It says, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. Okay, so these scriptures from the Old Testament law, they unmistakably teach the seriousness of making an oath and the binding nature of such a vow that is taken by an individual. In fact, the Old Testament standard regarding, regarding oaths was so high that if the Lord's name was invoked, the vow that's attached to it became considered a debt. And the oath taker was bound to that debt and had to pay it. And so having looked at these verses, if we come back to what Jesus is addressing in his teaching, the first thing that Jesus is addressing is the seriousness of making an oath. In fact, in the following verse, in verse 34, Jesus states, do not take an oath at all. He is not abolishing here oath-taking in totality. What he is abolishing is the casual way that the Israelites were treating oaths which was in complete contrast to the seriousness that the Old Testament views them. You know, from Jesus' teaching here in verse 34, where he says, do not take an oath at all, there's actually some groups, such as the Quakers and the Jehovah's Witnesses, that they have taken Jesus' words, do not take an oath at all, as an absolute statement, and they will not take an oath in any situation, including in court. However, holding this understanding of Jesus' teaching takes it too far. And I say that because Scripture itself indicates Jesus was not making an absolute statement for every situation that you would be in. And there's a couple of examples that we can look at that actually show this. First, the apostles who received this teaching from Jesus, they still made oaths at times, and some of these oaths were actually recorded in Scripture. In Romans chapter 9, verse 1, Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. So Paul is saying the Holy Spirit is witnessing that I am telling the truth in Jesus Christ. That's taking an oath. 2 Corinthians 1.23 says, But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. 
So again, we have Paul saying, I, I call God to witness against me that I did not come to you in order to spare you. So Paul is giving an oath by God saying, what I am telling you is true. Second, and maybe a more authoritative example, is how Jesus himself responded when he was brought before the Sanhedrin. When he was put on trial before his crucifixion, Matthew records for us that, that Jesus in his trial, he remained silent the whole time. He said nothing up until the point that the high priest invoked God's name to persuade Jesus to answer. Matthew 26, 63, it says, but Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. So I think it's significant that that only after invoking God's name, saying, by the living God, I adjure you, does Jesus actually respond. He doesn't rebuke the high priest, but it responds as though it was a legitimate request in a trial. So I understand that, that Jesus' intention is not to remove completely the taking of oaths, but his intention is certainly to restrict the taking of oaths to legitimate situations that are weighty enough that are somber enough, that are serious enough to require such an oath. I believe Jesus' aim in his teaching was and is to abolish oaths in most situations because they had become a tool of deceitfulness rather than a tool for righteousness as they were intended. There was a carelessness amongst the, the Jews in the taking of oaths, which completely missed the point of the Old Testament law. The point of the Old Testament law on oaths was to compel men and women to absolute truthfulness. But due to the sinfulness of human beings, what was meant to support absolute truthfulness was being used as a tool to subvert it. And it reminds me of what Paul talks about in Romans 7 in the, the twisting of the law by sin. Right? Paul says the, the law, something that is good and righteous, is corrupted by sin, grasping hold of the commandments of the law and producing in fallen human beings sinfulness and subversion of that law. Paul says this occurs so that sin may be shown to be sin. This is what, ha what, this is what was happening with oaths. What was good was being twisted to be sinful, to be evil. And so Jesus concludes, if sinful human beings are going to twist oaths for evil, then he will abolish them completely. Do not take an oath at all. I'll give you just a couple of illustrations of how this twisting was happening in Jesus' time. In the Jewish system that Jesus was directly speaking to, they had actually come up with a really sophisticated yet completely unsound reasoning to judge how binding an oath actually was. And they tried to determine it according to the Lord's name or the Lord's character. So I'll give you an example. Here you go. Buckle your seatbelts. The religious leaders had determined that swearing by heaven and earth was not binding, nor was swearing by Jerusalem. However, if you swore toward Jerusalem, that was binding. Figure that out, right? That makes sense. Sophisticated yet completely unsound. They had such a sophisticated system that part of the, the Mishnah, which is the first major collection of Jewish oral traditions, uh, it was dedicated to teachings on oaths. If you want to read it, okay, if you want to read it, if you're that kind of a nerd, uh, the teaching is contained in the Sebuoth tract of the Mishnah, so you can go online and you can search that. And I warn you, I searched it, 
and I started to read it. And if you think Alice in Wonderland is a rabbit trail, oh man, you are in for a treat. It is the most confounding rabbit trail of thoughts. So eight chapters if you want to have fun figuring that out. But the thing is, we must not be too hard on the Israelites, right? We can't be too hard on the Israelites of Jesus' day because though the form may look different, the same subversion of integrity remains alive and well in sinful human beings today. We are no different in heart than the Israelites. Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we are the same as them. And even then, with the Holy Spirit at work in our lives, the old man remains and sin clings closely at times. We are all guilty of a lack of integrity of word now and then. But we must strive in Jesus' kingdom to kill this sin. You know, we live in a time where integrity of word seems to be an outdated value. It's no longer considered a virtue to be truthful. We live in a culture that is marked by lies and a culture that is marked by misinformation. One church leader I was listening to just last week, he said, we are no longer in a postmodern relativistic culture. We are now in a post-truth culture, a culture where a lie or misinformation is acceptable if it serves what is considered the greater good as determined by those who are in power. Just this past week, a report came out from Google which actually said this, sometimes they put warnings on things that are factually accurate because even though they are true, they do not think it is in society's best interest for people to be seeing it. Like just let the brevity of that land on you for a minute. Right, Google, the, the, the company who kind of sifts information to billions of people is admitting that sometimes they put, this is a lie, even though it's truthful because they don't think it's beneficial for you to see it. This is one of the dangers of all of our information being centralized online. The, the information sifted to billions is, is controlled by a few. Trust in the media and, and news agencies is at an all-time low, and it's gotten worse during COVID. Because instead of reporting the news as those organizations did, you know, in my mom and dad's era, you know, they'd talk about the news and it was just a straightforward news. I don't know what that's like. I've never experienced that. Because they don't report the news anymore. They, for the most part, report narratives on the news that have a tilt in one direction or another, depending on what they want to accomplish. There have been major news stories in major organizations that have actually come out as false. And yet, instead of public uproar and a collective cry, they just keep, keep on. Because truth and integrity of word is a lost value in our culture. And as a result of this, there will be this increasing, and there already is this increasing reality that no one trusts anyone anymore. And everyone assumes each person is out for their own interests. And truth is based on what benefits an individual or an organization or an ideal. And what this does is it builds anxiety in people. We're an incredibly anxious culture. Where do you go? Who can you trust? 
What is factual? What is not? It builds this anxiety in people. We live in a culture where oaths and vows don't have the depth of significance that they should. Just look at the divorce rate in our culture. Or how about the flip side of that? The amount of men who will have a woman but will refuse to vow to love and honor her for the rest of their lives. This is the culture that we live in now. Integrity of word is at an all-time low. It seems that truth is unimportant to people, and people are okay with it if it serves them. But we can't just look at culture and lament. We also need to look at the church as well. You know, when I was thinking this week about integrity in the church, one example just kept coming into my mind. It kept coming back to me regularly. And it's a lack of integrity, I think, sometimes we can have around one massively important thing. And I guarantee that most of us, if not all of us in this room, are guilty of it at one time or another. And it's the flippant way that we throw around the commitment, I'll pray for you. Right? Like the, the, oath, the use of oaths amongst the Israelites, I'll pray for you, has become one of the biggest cop-outs in church culture. How many times have you said, I'll pray for you? Just because that's what you say, and then you don't do it. It's pretty constant in church culture, and we've become numb to it. But I just want you to stop and think about it for a moment. When we say, I'll pray for you, we are making a commitment to go before the almighty God of creation. Right? The one who is able to do far above all we think or ask. The one who can change circumstances. The one who can change hearts. The one who can literally bring people from death to life. And we're saying, I'm going to go before that God for you. And then we don't. It's grievous to say, I'm going to pray for you and then earnestly not do it. And it's something that in my life I become so aware of because there have been times where I've said, I will pray for you. Not that I'm throwing out platitudes, but I genuinely mean to pray for you and then I get busy and I don't. And so I've recognized this and I've committed in my own life that I will only say that to you if I am going to sit down and I'm going to pray for you in that moment right then and there because five minutes later I got four kids you know come on you know what that's like right some of you what about as individuals individually our integrity is seen in whether we commit to something and then back out of it we take it as no big deal, but it's a lack of integrity in our word. When we say we'll do something and then we back out of it, I'm going to be committed to this. Oh, sorry, I can't make it. Oh, sorry, I can't make it. Like, sure, at times things arise, but, but let's be honest, it's usually because we just don't feel like going. We just don't want to put in the effort. And you know what happens is usually when this sort of thing happens in our life, what's the first thing to go? It's church commitments. Let's be honest. It's so much easier to stay at home and watch Netflix than go to small group. 
It's church commitments that fall to the floor first. And so what's Jesus' response to this lack of integrity? Jesus says in verse 34, But I say to you, as the one who fulfills the law, the one to whom the prophets point, here is my authoritative teaching on, meaning, on the meaning of God's law. Verse 34 to 36. Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven or by the earth, or sorry, or by, sorry, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, and do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. The point is this, giving an oath on anything, saying, I swear, I swear on this, is the same thing as invoking God's name. It implicitly involves the Lord, because why? Everything is the Lord's. You swear by heaven, it's his throne. You swear by earth, it's his footstool. You swear by Jerusalem, it's his honored city. You swear by yourself, guess what? He made you. All is God's. And so taking an oath is implicitly taking one by God's name. And so we better be prepared to pay that debt if we don't uphold it. And the point is, none of us can. None of us can. We take oaths by things that we don't ultimately own. They don't belong to us. And so instead, here's how we should act, Jesus says. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Translated literally, this says, let what you say be simply yes, yes, or no, no. There's a double emphatic in the original text, which in Jewish culture implies the solemnity of your word. Jesus is saying, people who are a part of my kingdom should be filled with the utmost of integrity that you don't need to swear. You don't need to add anything on. You don't need to take an oath because you understand your yes is binding and your no is binding and you will always do what you say. Anything more than this comes from evil. Sometimes translated comes from the evil one. Proverbs 10, 19. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. As followers of Christ, we should be the type of people whom others know that when we open our mouths, truth comes forth. When we open our mouths and say we will do something, it will be done. When we open our mouths and commit to anything, we follow through on it. We will be there. We will do what we said we will do. Our integrity should be a light on a hill. It should be salt of the earth in a culture where truth and integrity is rare. I'll end with the why. Why does this matter so much? Why does Jesus teach on our integrity? Why does he say, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Walk around with integrity of word before others. Why? One main reason. We carry with us. We herald unto others the most important message in the world. The message of how fallen and broken human beings are redeemed by a Savior, sent by a loving God, so that we may not walk blindly through life in sin and perish, but walk in joy, walk in peace, and deep fellowship with our Creator now and forever.
This is the message that Jesus has sent every single one of us who are followers of Christ with, the message of salvation. And guess what? That message is difficult to hear. It is difficult to go up to someone and say, hey, guess what? You're a sinner. That is not how you make friends. But it's necessary. It's a difficult message to hear. You are a sinner. And let's be honest, it's a difficult message to believe. What do you mean? God came as a baby. He grew to a man, lived a sinless life, and died on a cross, raising from the grave three days later, defeating sin and death so that we could be free? That's a difficult message to believe. And so the point of Jesus' teaching here is that, brothers and sisters, we dare not do anything as heralds of this message, as ambassadors for Jesus Christ, to hurt someone's ability to believe this message simply because they cannot believe what is coming out of our mouths. We must be above reproach because of this message that we carry. Eternal reality for those who are lost and broken depend on it. And so, let your yes be yes and your no be no for the sake of the message that you carry and the great King that you serve. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that the message of salvation and the ability to receive comes through hearing. You have, for whatever reason, in your wisdom, decided to use broken human beings to herald the greatest message in the world. And as those who are a part of your kingdom, we carry this message into every avenue of life that we go into. Father, may that be binding on our hearts, knowing that you have given us this role to play. We know that when your word goes out, it doesn't return void. And so, Father, we rejoice in this incredible role that you have given us. And Father, may it motivate us to make sure that when we speak, it is true. That when we commit, we follow through. Lord, we know that in our culture, integrity is lacking. What better way to show our salt, to show our light, to be the type of people that when someone comes to us, they know that what we say is true. They know that they can trust us. Father, we know that sin, it remains close at times, and our words can get away from us. We know what James teaches about the tongue being really difficult to bridle. Father, help us through the power of your Spirit to let our yes be yes and our no be no. For the sake of those that don't know you. 
Thank you for loving us. And Lord, thank you for your patience with us. We give you praise. In Jesus' name. Amen.